I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. What a year it's been. So much has happened, I couldn't possibly fit it all into one end-of-year monologue. I've had to watch back my monologues. Some of them were better than others, more prescient than others, though some of them were pulverizingly powerful. And if only those who are actually powerful would watch them, well, they might have a better idea of how to get out of the mess we are in. The highlights or lowlights of the year are obvious if you're in Britain. I would have to Google to check who and what and how many ministers Britain has had in the course of 2022. We've had three prime ministers. I'm not making that up. Three prime ministers in the course of 2022. But we've also had multiple foreign ministers Home Ministers, that's the Ministry of the Interior in countries that don't lie. It is uh, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister. We have actually had so many that even someone with the elephantine memory and grasp of political events like me could not possibly adumbrate them all at once to you without reading them out. Indeed, most of them are not worth reading out although they'll be getting a pension as the former minister of this or that, even if they literally only spent a single day in the job, as some of them actually did. Only a day in the job paid forever more as the former minister for paper clips in the British government. It has been the omni-shambles, the cluster you-know-what. And it isn't over yet. As I speak at the end of 2022, no one has actually seen the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, for many weeks. Now, a charitable interpretation of that is that he's burning the midnight oil, coming up with a cunning plan to get us out of the difficulties we're in, or even trying to find some midnight oil in order to burn because, of course, Britain is in the grip of the deepest of freezes and the economic consequences of that will be being felt next Christmas when, God willing, I speak to you again. Rishi Sunak, I say it again, Rashid Sunuk, as Joe Biden called him on the day that he was elected. I say elected loosely because, of course, Nobody stood against him, and he was picked only by a tiny handful of Conservative members of Parliament, who had defenestrated two of his predecessors over almost as few months. 
Boris Johnson looked to be the king of all he surveyed when he won an 80-seat Conservative majority in the late, bleak midwinter of 2019. Now he's left with his tail between his legs, but his bank balance considerably enhanced. As we reached the end of 2022, Boris Johnson recorded, as he must in the parliamentary records, that he had earned £1,025,000, that's a lot more in dollars, for speaking to audiences around the world in just the few months since he ceased to be Prime Minister. No wonder he wasn't in any hurry to come back. He's going to be a multi-millionaire by the end of all this, which is just as well as he has multiple alimony and an uncounted number of children to pay for. There was then an interregnum. It will be remembered, if at all, as a comic opera episode when someone called Liz Truss wandered into Downing Street, bemused and bewildered, to find that she was the new Prime Minister, but not for long. So puerile, pitiful, so stupid, doltish was Liz Trust that even her own stupid colleagues and the Conservatives have long been known as the stupid party discovered that with her they were all going down the tubes. Others, of course, had never accepted her as they had never accepted Boris Johnson's replacement. They had uh, a kind of indefatigable desire to turn back to the one true blue faith, which for many of them is the star that never died called Margaret Thatcher. For others, it's the effervescent star of Boris Johnson. But for the majority of conservative members of parliament, it was the diminutive billionaire Rishi Sunak. I say billionaire, he's only worth actually a few hundred million himself, but his wife is worth more than a billion. So as a power couple, if she ever comes back to the country, she's offshore dodging tax at the moment, uh, then the two of them together are the richest occupants of Downing Street in the entire history of the British state. Good luck to them, as long as they didn't commit any crimes in making their money. But I have my doubts that Rishi Sunak has any idea what life is currently like on a housing estate in industrial or post-industrial Britain in sub-zero temperatures for families that literally cannot afford to heat their homes. He's never gone hungry. He's never been cold. He has never been worried about where the next paycheck is coming from. He is a man with a green card, ready, like Boris perhaps, to flee to the United States when the inevitable happens. And the Conservatives in power since 2010 finally hit the rocks. How lucky are we that if that happens, Rishi Sunak will probably be replaced by somebody called Sir Keir Starmer who's even worse, and if you've never seen him, what a treat you have got in store. 
So the collapsing British government was, for me, living in Britain, the number one story of the year. But of course, the backdrop to all of this has been the war in Ukraine, which drags on, I'm afraid, and will still be on next Christmas at this time, I wholeheartedly predict to you. Unless, of course, there is an uprising in Kiev and the people of Ukraine realize finally that they have been taken for a very, very expensive ride, expensive in blood and treasure. Ursula von der Leyen, the chief of the European Union, underestimated when she said unguardedly in December that the Ukrainian armed forces had lost more than 100,000 men dead. That would mean, of course, on the normal military ratio, two to 300,000 wounded, maimed, disabled, crippled, on top of those who were dead. But many people, including the great Scott Ritter, believe that she was seriously undercounting. And of course, since von der Leyen spoke, the battles around Bakhmat and elsewhere are now impacting even in the pro-war press in Britain as military disasters for Ukraine. In Bakhmat, it's estimated that 10,000 men are already dead and the battle is still not over. 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers in a single battle for a town that you have never heard of, couldn't spell and probably can't pronounce. The war has been a catastrophe for the people of Ukraine. It has been quite a burden for the people of Russia also. But the second biggest victim of this war has been the population of Europe, without a doubt. Of course, the Ukrainians have lost the blood, but we and the rest of Europe have lost the treasure. The treasure in the scores of billions that we have sent to the Zelensky regime in Kiev, the treasure that we've lost through our collapsing economy and our entirely self-harming raft of sanctions that we imposed to punish Russia. It's a weird kind of punishment where the person meeting it out feels the pain and the person on the receiving end of it makes the gain. The ruble is the best performing currency of 2022. The Russian economy is booming. Every order they lost in the West, they've made up for in the East. In fact, a lot of what they're selling to the East is ending up at an inflated price in the West in any case. Of all the European economies to suffer the impact of the Self-harming sanctions that Western leaders have introduced Germany is, of course, the biggest loser. The German government's jacket hangs on a very shaky nail in the chancery in Berlin. The truth is that Germany had made itself over-dependent on Russian gas. You can see why they did so. There had never been the slightest interruption on political grounds in the supply, the price was low, certainly by comparison with the American LPG that they are now having to buy. LPG, LNG, now have to come in on floating terminals. 
which have to be paid for by the customer and the environmental impact of the American imports, not to mention the price, four times the price they were paying for Russia, has literally devastated the German economy. Germany became too dependent on Russian gas, to be sure, but equally too dependent on hordes of cheap labor brought in from the East in either economic migrant uh, terms or in terms of political refugees. Angela Merkel literally allowed millions of refugees and economic migrants into Germany, and now there's nowhere for them to work. They're all dressed up in German clothes in German cities with nowhere to go. Certainly no factories because the factories are closing down, many of them being unbolted from the floor and shipped to the United States of America and their key workers being given green cards to follow the factory and go and live and work in the United States. Now this is a very combustible mixture, is it not? Knowing as you must the history of Germany. Economic collapse, the existence in the country of millions of potential scapegoats, a rising tide of hatred of the political class of the German establishment, a weak leader in little soldier Schultz and his crutch, the German Green Party that care about the environment so much they could not be more gung-ho for weapons and war. The mixture in Germany is now so toxic that I fear that political catastrophe in Germany is looming in 2023. And if it is, we of course will be monitoring it very closely on the mother of all talk shows. But it's not just Germany. In Britain, as I said earlier, a people's Electricity and gas bills have multiplied, doubled, tripled, or in our household case, quadrupled. Businesses, small and medium size, simply cannot afford to pay their energy bills and are closing their doors. Even big companies, if you think about it, cannot possibly have budgeted for a tripling or a quadrupling of their energy costs. Certainly, the rising unemployment and underemployment, short-time working and wage cuts that the British working people are suffering is an indicator that this, of course, has not yet run its course. The British working class is up in arms, out on the stones, in their millions, railway workers, postal workers, national health service workers, workers of all kinds, rejecting the savage wage cuts that their employers are demanding of them. Because, of course, a wage increase of 4% when inflation is at 12% and rising is an 8% and rising cut in your wages. One of my neighbours got a wage increase in 2022 of 1% in a country where inflation is more than 10 times that. You don't have to be Einstein to do the maths about how people's living standards are being slashed. Of course, the British working class are not the most militant. That label belongs to the French in Europe, and it remains to be seen how little 
Napoleon, President Macron, can stay atop a collapsing economic situation in France when the French people have been militant on the streets with the cobblestones in their hands for centuries. So the North American economy is not yet in the parlous state of the Europeans. But the alliance between the United States and Europe is becoming precarious because an increasing number of people in Europe realize that it was the United States that dragged us into this. The third biggest story for me of 2022 is the highly visible cognitive decline of the American President Joe Biden, almost like a metaphor of American decline, shitting itself in the Vatican, soiling itself in the corridors of the White House, unable to remember where it is, what it's doing there, and what its purpose originally was. The United States is in a very bad political place right now. Not only have they completely failed in their declared task of confronting, dividing, weakening, and if possible, regime changing the Russian Federation, the Chinese economy is passing them by on the inside track and at quite a rate. China doesn't like to boast about its prospects of becoming the world's largest economy. So let me boast for them. I'm saying to you that by the end of 2023, at worst, by the middle of 2024, the Chinese will be the biggest economy in the world. China is already lifted 800 million people out of poverty and the average Chinese family are now richer than the average European family. Just think about that. When I was young, my mother used to tell me to eat up. They were starving in China. Actually, there's people starving but for charity and food banks here in Britain today. But back to Joe Biden as he wandered around stage after stage after stage, flustered, lost, as he misspoke, misstated, misread autocue after autocue, as he embarrassed hosts like the Pope and others with his unscheduled toilet breaks all over the world. At one point, he almost walked off the end of a pier at a meeting in England. He turned the wrong way and began to walk towards the sea. Luckily, his good wife was there to save him, or maybe not so luckily. Joe Biden is, of course, an embarrassment. Kamala Harris, even more so. And the looming presence of Donald Trump waiting in the wings to do what only one president before him has ever done, to come back for a second term. That'll be the big story of 2023. Can Joe make it to the finishing line? Is he seriously expecting to run and win again? And if he did, at the age of 82 and not quite in control of his faculty or his bowels, what would that tell us about the state of the divided United States? So many other stories 
the World Cup in Qatar, such an outstanding success. The victories for people like Lula in Brazil and the contesting of those victories by an unrepentant and unforgiving right wing. The overthrow of the president of Peru, the jailing on bogus grounds of the vice president of Argentina, the continued strength though of left-wing forces in many Latin American countries like Mexico and like Colombia, which to the astonishment of many, including me, now has a former guerrilla fighter as its president and has kissed and made up with Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Speaking of him, whatever happened to Juan Guaido, the guy we gave all the gold and claimed he was the president. Much more, of course, coming up on the mother of all talk shows twice weekly. From next week, we'll be on Sundays and Wednesdays every single week, God willing. But anyway, on with this compilation of some of the best of moats of 2022. First up, who else? But the next president of the United States of America, the one and only legend, Jimmy Dore. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 2022 just about saw Joe Biden cling on. He lost control of the House of Representatives, but kept control of the Senate. So not quite out the door, but rather grimly lost, wandering around the corridors in Pennsylvania Avenue looking for a toilet in a hurry. But it's the only thing he can do in a hurry. Joe Biden does not look a well man. And interview after interview, Video after video began to appear on the internet, each one raising more mirth and, in some cases, pity around the whole world. I started by asking the legendary comedian and perhaps potential president himself, Jimmy Dore, about Joe Biden. But he actually had a question right up top for me. Hey, if this is the mother of all talk shows, is there a father of all talk shows? 
You could be the father of all talk shows, Jimmy. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be delighted to be uh, twinned with you into eternity. Jimmy, let's okay. take a look at the latest tragic comedy. It's only 20 seconds. Bear with me. Uh. Let's look at Joe Biden's latest outing. Mr. President, thank you. At the end of such a momentous event, the word thank you seems kind of inadequate, but for all the millions whose lives will be saved, for the communities where life will be transformed, thank you. So thank you, President Biden. Well, do you notice how he walks with his hands out like that? Like he has his hands kind of like in front of him and I'm told that that's how people who are demented walk. So we know that Joe Biden is demented. What it, this isn't something that happened once. This isn't something that happens twice. This isn't something that happened three, four, or five times. This is something that happens every time he finishes a speech. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know where to go. And he's walking with his hands out like that. And that's, uh, I mean, he's like a child. You wouldn't, again, you wouldn't, you if Joe uh, if Joe Biden was a regular American, you'd take his keys to his car away because you, he wouldn't know how to. They would have to do a silver alert. They have these things in America called silver alerts where your cell phone has an alarm on it. And it means that an elderly person has gotten lost and wandered away from their home. And that's what Joe Biden would be getting if he didn't have handlers. But why this just goes to show how bad are his handlers. They know this happens to him all the time and they still don't have a plan for it. They don't have a regular that uh, an assistant or an aide would come up and walk him off stage and show him where to go. They don't do it. This is elder abuse. And, you know, I do a joke in my act about Joe Biden was supposed to be here tonight, except he got stuck in a couch. He really does get stuck in couches. That's what that is the equivalent of. And I don't understand why his staff hasn't come with a pl up with a plan and how to get him off of a stage. That's the, like the basics he can't do. He can't get off of a stage. Anyway. Why put him on a stage? Now, look, Jimmy, in my religion, it's a sin to mock the afflicted. But this man is uh, afflicting the rest of the world. Uh, so. Yes. It would be a sin not to uh, highlight his inadequacy. So I'm not making fun of Joe Biden's dementia. I'm making fun of the lie they're telling us about Joe Biden's mental state. That's what is, that's why you could make fun of Joe Biden. That's why you can make fun of this situation. We're not laughing at a demented person. We're laughing at a, the most powerful organization in the world lying to us right on camera. That's what this is. This is a lie. This is a lie equivalent to WMDs. That This is the equivalent to the lie that led us into Libya. This is equivalent to the lie that led us into Syria. This is equivalent to the lie that has us committing a genocide in Yemen. This is equivalent to the lie that has us in bed with terrorists in Ethiopia. This is, a, this is a bigger than any lie Trump ever told. The lie that Joe Biden is not demented is a serious lie with serious consequences. And when I tweeted out that video 
video on my Twitter feed and I asked people, who do you think is actually running the country? Because it's not this guy. He can't even get himself off a stage. I wouldn't ask that guy directions to the freeway. Are you kidding me? This guy's running the world. So who is making the decisions? It's certainly not Kamala Harris. Who is who's making decisions on Ukraine? Who is making the decisions that have ramped up our inflation here to a 40 year high? Who is and he goes on television nightly whenever he gives an interview they have to immediately walk back everything he said he did a 60 minutes interview this week and immediately he said yeah i would uh, we would go to war to, to to defend taiwan and then they had to immediately walk it back everything this guy says they have to immediately walk back hey, hey uh, pan, the pandemic is over but we have to walk that back everything he says he he's not the president I mean, he is technically and legally the president, but we all know that he's not running the country. So I want to know who really is. I wish someone would ask his press secretary, uh, who is a great liar. She's better than Trump's liars. And I wish that they would ask her uh, who's really running the country. Well, there's this uh, bag, isn't there? The, they call it the football, which literally has the nuclear triggers in it. It cannot possibly be at the bottom of his bed, Jimmy. <laughs> because anything could happen. He could fall over it. He could confuse it with the remote control for the television. Uh, yeah, the fact that the, the idea that Joe Biden has. So that was what we were supposed to be afraid of under Trump, George. Remember that we were supposed to be afraid that uh, uh, Donald Trump, this madman, has his finger on the nuclear button. And now here we are, a guy who's visibly demented. They're lying about it. And he has his finger on the mill on the nuclear button as he's saber rattling with two nuclear powers, Russia and China. And, you know, I don't know why people in America or people in Europe are letting this happen. I, I don't understand what's what they get. I, I mean, I get that this is all about economics and the United States selling more liquefied natural gas to Europe. So if there's going to be a, a, a war, it's going to be about natural resources. So that's what this is. At. But I don't really get what's in it for Germany, for the citizens. I get what it's in it for the oligarchs, but I don't get it what's in it for the citizens. And I don't understand why they're putting up with it. Like what's going to happen in Germany this winter with their energy costs, uh, people, this is going to, these are dire circumstances right now. And uh, so I don't understand why they're let. So they say that uh, now that Trump is gone, Joe Biden is the adult in the room. It's more like the adult diaper in the room is Joe Biden. He's not the adult in the room. He's the guy you need to take care of in the room. He's not the guy to lead the free world. No, we used to hear, speaking of Trump, all the time, the demand that the cabinet uh, triggers Article 25 of the U.S. Constitution and find that uh, Donald Trump is not fit uh, to carry out his duties, a kind of palace coup using the 25th Amendment. Um, now, if that was the talk of the town, the talk of the liberal town at least, the talk of New York town, city, uh, why isn't it now? Why doesn't anyone raise now that, look, we'd be doing Joe Biden a favor? We'd be, okay. we'd, we'd be being compassionate to trigger Article 25 now. 
So the reason why that they were talking about doing that to Donald Trump and they're not talking about doing that to Joe Biden is because Joe Biden does the bidding of the establishment lock, stock and barrel. So they don't care who the president is, how demented he is, how anything he is, as long as he's doing what they say. And he's doing exactly what they say. He's not giving people a living wage. He's not giving people health care. And he's starting to, uh, he's ra- saber rattling with two nuclear powers and he's doing all the war stuff that they want him to do. And And so they don't want to get rid of Joe Biden. He's the perfect guy to them to have in that office. And the reason why they don't want Trump in that office is because he puts a bad face on the establishment and imperialism. And so, you know, uh, the reason why they hate Donald Trump isn't because he's a liar. It's because every once in a while he accidentally tells the truth that you're not supposed to tell. Like, for instance, when they said, hey, why are you staying in Syria? He says, we're staying for the oil. No, you can't say that. No, we're staying for the oil. You have to say it's about democracy. You have to say it's about liberty. We're helping the people. No, we're staying for the oil. That's why we're staying. So that's why they can't have him. Because and, and you know, as much as Trump wants credit for spearheading warp speed, which gave us the mRNA vaccine in uh, for COVID in uh, America, he uh, they won't give him credit. They still paint Donald Trump as an anti-vaxxer. And why won't they give him credit for the vax that he wants? Because he's a bad face. He's bad for the brand. They can sell more vaccines with demented Joe than they can with a uh, lying uh, Donald Trump. And that's all this is. So that's why I've tried to explain this to people on my show. Why do they hate Donald Trump so much? He's not legislating any different than the rest of them. He didn't. He didn't give us jobs. He didn't give us health care. He didn't end the wars and invest that money back here. But he did give a tax cut to millionaires and billionaires, just like all the other garbage, just like Barack Obama, just like George Bush before him, just like Bill Clinton before him. They crushed the working class and they filled the pockets of the elite. That's that's what they did during COVID. And so that's why they that's why Joe Biden is not being asked to leave office and Donald Trump was because Donald Trump is at a bad face for the brand of imperialism and American establishment. And that's what be, because every time uh, when Donald and I predicted it, that that would happen once Donald Trump became president, people would then become aware of the horrible stuff Barack Obama and George Bush and Bill Clinton before him were all doing. And they're all doing in bipartisan unity. So when Donald Trump banned Muslims at the airport, Muslim immigrants, people then found out out why are there Muslim immigrants at the airport? Oh, because Barack Obama bombed them for eight straight years. And the establishment doesn't want you to understand that. Just like when we found out Donald Trump was putting immigrant kids in cages, and then we found out Barack Obama and Joe Biden built those cages, and they can't have you putting together those pieces. And so and then you find out uh, Donald Trump is gassing immigrants at the border. You find out that also Barack Obama gassed immigrants at the border, and I guess they should be honored they were gassed by the lesser of two evils. So that's the real thing going on here. The president is not the president. The president is only the president as long as he does the bidding of the oligarchy and the establishment. And that is not hyperbole. Barack Obama, who everybody thought was a lefty socialist, got more money from Wall Street than his Republican opponent. His entire cabinet came from Wall Street. WikiLeaks revealed that, which is why they want to kill him, because he tells the truth about people like Joe Biden and Barack Obama. So that's exactly what's going on. That's why Joe Biden is allowed to be president, even though he can't even get himself off of the stage. Uh, that's what's really going on. And people don't know that and people don't want to know that. Is there another issue, Jimmy? Uh, I used to work for the satirical magazine Private Eye in London. And when uh, Richard Nixon had Spiro Agnew as his vice president, they had a picture of the two of them on their front page. And in the speech bubble, Nixon's pointing at Agnew and he says, no one's going to shoot me with this guy next in line. 
is there something uh, in the Kamala Harris issue that they can't get rid of Joe Biden because that makes Kamala Harris the president? Hey, you know what? That's, that's a great point. <laughs> yes, exactly right. People don't. Uh, what what a better insurance policy for Joe Biden to remain president than to pick uh, Kamala Harris as his vice president? Boy, oh boy, she sounds like Joe Biden, and she's of sound mind. That's what's bad. That's what's bad about Kamala Harris. She, uh, we, I, 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 I don't get what people see in Kamala Harris. Uh, she's being every time she talks, she, uh, she embarrasses herself and. You know, she's supposed to be in charge of the border, the border crisis in the United States. Uh, and they keep asking her, hey, have you been to the border yet? She hasn't even been to the border yet. So they're clowns, right? So what, what people don't know about Kamala Harris is that she was actually the first choice of the oligarchy to be president. She was the first one who went to Martha's Vineyard and they canonized her. They anointed her. She's going to be, they gave her all the money and they thought that they had another, they had a female Barack Obama. They thought they had an attractive uh, African-American who uh, speak, spoke eloquently and could get people to go to sleep while the oligarchy and the establishment crushed them economically, which is what Barack Obama did. Barack Obama was a sweet talker and he made people feel good when he spoke while he was screwing them. Barack Obama admitted that he is not a socialist, but that his policies were should be considered moderate Republican, which means he's a right winger, which he was. And so what people don't know is so when Kamala Harris got anointed by Wall Street in the oligarchy, she then couldn't garner a vote. She went out in the primary and nobody she didn't get one delegate. Nobody would vote for her, even though the establishment had already tapped her. And she got 100. She got all kinds of press. It was all positive. And so what did the oligarchy do then? They went to their next most reliable dupe, the oligarchies. And that is Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been doing the bidding of Wall Street and the military industrial complex like nobody's business for four 40 years in, in Congress. That's why they went to Joe Biden next, because they knew he was reliable. They went from Kamala Harris. They went to Joe Biden. And that's why we have the two people we have as president and vice president, not because they're actually leaders, but because they are the biggest dupes and the most corruptible pieces of garbage in politics. That's how they became president and vice president, not because they're leaders, but because they're 100 percent corrupt. Jimmy, are you thinking about a run as a third party candidate? Everyone watching this tonight will be hoping your answer to that is yes. If I so the idea uh, I want I wish someone with my message would run for president, right? Because the message that I I'm carrying on my show is that the thing that scares the hell out of the establishment the most is to see people on the left and the right realizing we have a common enemy, the establishment that has been crushing us both. You know, we did we went through a, a two years of a controlled demolition of our economy during COVID and the handful of billionaires and millionaires, they all got richer while we all got poorer. And they want me to blame my neighbor for the pain that we're all feeling economically because they wouldn't take a vaccine that didn't work the way they said it did. And I'm not going to blame my neighbor for that. I'm going to love my neighbor. And so what we're realizing is that we actually have a lot of things in common left and right. Like we're against the wars and we want to invest that money back here. We're for a living wage. We're against uh, we're for health care in America. So there's we're, we're for education that doesn't bankrupt us. So we're we've got a lot of stuff in common. And what they don't want us to realize that, which is why they have to call half the country fascists now. They have to say the enemy is now within, which is what every dictator does. 
every fascist dictator does. And that's what Joe Biden has done. That's what the Democratic Party does. But the Democratic Party is the establishment. So the Republican Party is not different than the Democratic Party. They answer to the same people. Trump was an outsider in that. And they're trying to make him seem like he's some kind of special kind of crazy when all he is was he wasn't as easily controlled as every other politician because he didn't come up. He doesn't own the favors and they didn't own him, which is why they had to do four years of Russiagate. And now they're still in They're still doing FBI raids of his house because they know they're so corrupt. The Democrats and Republicans aren't going to give you any legislation that actually helps your life in a material way. So they have to do all this stuff like we're fighting fascism, like Trump's some kind of a fascist instead of what he is, which is a game show host. And so that's what they, that's what this is all about. And they can't let Trump run because they're so corrupt. He would beat them again, which is why they have the FBI going through his closet. Is that a maybe? So um, if I ran and the idea would be to get 10 percent of the vote and if I could, we could get 10 percent of when people called on polls and stuff like that, that gives you power. And so now we could become the kingmaker. Now you can't, the Democrats can't get elected without us. The Republicans can't get elected without us. So now we have a little bit of power, a little bit more negotiating room to demand some things for people in the United States. And that's always been the idea. And that's always been the idea that scared the hell out of them. Ralph Nader wanted to do the same thing in 2000. And you've seen what they've done to Ralph Nader. He is persona non grana in this entire country. One of the greatest uh, people who ever came out of this country. And so any, and look, and look what they're, and that's why Bernie never ran third party because he knew they would do that to him. And if I ran third party and it actually was successful and I actually started to get 10% in the polls, I will guarantee you they would find kitty porn on my computer because that's the kind of stuff those people do. We're talking about people who kill people for a living. What do you think they're doing in Yemen? They're committing a genocide for money. What do you think we did in Libya? Committing a genocide for money, turning that place into a slave trade. What do you think we did in Iraq? We killed a million people for money. What do you think we're doing in Ukraine? We're using those people as cannon fodder for money. And if you don't think they would do the same thing to somebody like me, if I actually could threaten the establishment, they would. The first thing they do is they take down my channel. That's the first thing they do. And then they plant kitty. If I didn't go away, they'd plant kitty porn on my computer. You know that's what they would do. They and Jill Stein was the Green Party candidate in 2012. She showed up. They wouldn't let her in the debate. They won't even let the people hear you if you're a third party in the United States. They wouldn't let her in the debate. She showed up to the debate. They handcuffed her in the basement for eight hours. That's what they did to a doctor who was running as a Green Party candidate. And she showed up to a debate. They handcuffed her in the basement for eight hours. Why? Because the truth is a threat. And the truth will always out. That was the legendary Jimmy Dore, comedian, late night radio and television commentator. And if I can have my way, the next president of the United States of America. Now, coming up, one of the most viewed guests ever on the mother of all talk shows, Gonzalo Lira, a Chilean-American, lost, but we hope soon to be found somewhere in Ukraine. Stay tuned. green smoke rose, their faces flashed out pallid green and faded again as it vanished. Then slowly the hissing passed into a humming, into a long, loud, droning noise. Suddenly 
A humped shape rose out of the pit, and the ghost of a beam of light seemed to flicker out after it. Forthwith, flashes of actual flame, a bright glare leaping from one to another, sprang from the scattered group of men. It was as if some invisible jet impinged upon them and flashed into white flame. It was as if each man were suddenly and momentarily turned to fire. November, in fact, several times in the course of the year, racking up actually millions of views, I spoke to Gonzalo Lira. In November, though, I spoke to him about the apparent Russian withdrawal from Kherson and asked him about its significance. Take a look. We have to look at it from the point of view of the Russians, see, because it's all good and fine to say that the Ukrainians recaptured territory and so forth. But from the point of view, militarily speaking, the Russians had, across the Dnieper River, they had approximately 20,000 men, uh, some estimates put it at 30,000 men, in open steppe terrain that was difficult to defend. Now, they were successfully defending it for the entire length of this operation, because do keep in mind, this was the first area that was captured by the Russians at the start of the special military operation. And they were holding it without any problem but they did require to have some of their better troops there. They had specifically paratroopers there that were essentially defending open steppe terrain and the city of Kherson. Now, we always have to remember, as Clausewitz wrote, you don't fight for territory, you fight against armies. When the op opposite army is destroyed, then you've won the war. It doesn't matter the territory that you hold. Now, the Russians very clearly from a political perspective, from the perspective of optics and propaganda, this is a loss. And one could characterize it as a quote-unquote catastrophic loss. Militarily speaking, it's not. In fact, in many ways, it's beneficial to the Russians because they are ceding ground the, um, the right bank of the Dnieper River that is open steppe terrain that is actually lower than the uh, um, left bank of the Dnieper River, that is the south side of the river, which is higher ground. Now, of course, the river is quite wide, and so it becomes a natural barrier. On top of that, the Russians, as they withdrew, they destroyed the bridges connecting the north to the south. And so all of a sudden, the Russians find themselves needing far fewer troops to depend, defend this new line, because, of course, there's the river there. And the river is very wide if you look at a map. And so it's going to be easy to defend for the Russians so they can dedicate a lot of those forces that were on the north side of the river, river previous to, to the withdrawal. They can now assign them to other areas of the front line. So it is consolidating their front line and it is long term more beneficial to them. There is obviously the political setback of having lost a Russian city because they are claiming that the region of Kherson, including the city of Kherson, is now Russian territory. But the Russians have historically been more than willing to give up territory in order to conserve their army. And in the end, they always prevail. 
because at the end of the day, territory doesn't matter. What matters is the opposing armed force. And we have to keep in mind something else. The Zelensky regime forces are at the very end of their tether. They have run out of their own weaponry. They're, they're dependent exclusively on NATO weaponry. And NATO is running out of those spare weapons that they can sell, send to Ukraine. There's also the issue that the Russians have been pounding the electrical system. And for those of you who don't know, the electrical system, it's not a punitive measure against the civilians in Ukraine, in Western Ukraine especially, but rather the train system runs on electricity. So by destroying the electrical substations, those trains no longer can move. And of course, you need those trains to move troops and weapons, the weapons that were coming from the West. Now, the Russians are continuing with this attack. It's a consistent pace of approximately 100 attacks per day, or numbers to that effect. And so they are giving up this terrain that, in terms of optics, looks bad. But in terms of their own military position, it actually improves the situation because they're going to need far fewer men to defend this new contact line in Kherson because of the river. And they will be able to dedicate those paratroopers, especially, in other areas. We also have to factor in another, fa uh, another issue, which is that the Russians called up 300,000 men, or at least they say that they called up 300,000 men. I personally believe it was far higher, but that's for another conversation. The point is they called up 300,000 men, already 50,000 of, of those men are in the combat area of the south of Ukraine, and many more are expected. These uh, 50,000 men who have arrived have arrived with their gear, their weaponry, tanks, and what have you. And so the Russians are clearly building up an army. And the fact that they are withdrawing from this territory in Kherson that was difficult to defend did not con uh, confer any kind of uh, operational advantage and was essentially a drain on them. Clearly, they are marshalling their forces for some large-scale attack. Now, as to whether this what, conflict what will might be that, frozen... What might that be, Gonzalo? Where, where might these uh, reinforcements be headed? That's the middle question. Um, nobody's really clear. There are multiple possibilities. There is the possibility that they come from the north in Belarus and strike south and try to cut off uh, Ukraine. It could be that they use these forces from Belgorod, which is just across uh, the border here in Kharkov, from Belgorod, strike into the Kharkov region, or it could be that they use them uh, in the Donbass area around the city of Donetsk. And really, at, at this stage, we don't know, but clearly the Russians do. Clearly, this was the reason that they brought in Surovikin. Remember that when Surovikin, the general who is now in overall uh, command of the, of the war, the first thing that he said was that difficult decisions would have to be made. Clearly, the decision to withdraw from Kherson was that decision that he was referring to. And clearly, they brought him in because he had an overall strategy. Because this is my thinking about the overall war so far. On February 24th, the Russians started the special military operation. And for the first month and a half, until the very beginning of April, they tried very hard to negotiate some sort of settlement, some sort of ceasefire agreement with the Zelensky regime. 
That was undercut and undermined by Boris Johnson, who flew out, if you recall, in early April. And after that, the negotiations between the Zelensky regime and Russia were broken off. And since then, until early September, there has been this slow grinding war. And it seems to me to have been some sort of attempt to negotiate or politically settle this dispute. At the same time, the Russians were gathering their uh, political allies in China, in India, in the global south, and showing to them that this was really a war not between Russia and Ukraine, but rather NATO against Russia, and that the Russians were defending themselves. Clearly, the global south and China and India have come to the conclusion that this is what's happening and they are on the side of Russia. And so now it seems that starting in September, the Russians have basically decided, okay, the gloves are off. And when they called up the 300,000 men, and at the same time, or roughly the same time, named uh, General Sergei um, Surovikin as the overall commander, clearly the Kremlin made the decision that they are now in it to win it, as they say. And I think that the Russians are, the Surovikin under Surovikin's command, are clearly preparing for some sort of major offensive. The specifics of it, I would be completely speculating. It could be anything, but clearly they have that the gloves are coming off and they are going to do everything in their power to win it. Now, here comes a key issue that I'm gonna be doing a video about this uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. You see, the uh, Ukraine forces, the Zelensky regime, all of their equipment, which was winterized, has been pretty much destroyed. They are operating with NATO equipment. That equipment is not winterized. It is not designed, nor does it have the maintenance or the lubricants to weather through the harsh winter that is coming. I've lived in Ukraine for a number of years now. I can tell you that the winters here are horrible. And compared to Northern European winters, I mean, Northern Europe does not suffer the winters that the Ukrainian steppe suffers the NATO weaponry will not be prepared for that kind of winter. And the Russian armed forces will be. So we're going to have multiple factors uh, converging that will be on the side of the Russians. Kherson looks bad, but in the overall scheme of things, it's fairly trivial. It's much like the withdrawal from part of the Kharkov region that at the time was declared to be a great victory. And it was only later that it emerged that the Russians lost relatively few soldiers, whereas the Zelensky regime took horrifying punishment because the Russians just hammered them as they went into this abandoned area. The, the um, Zelensky regime at this time is very worried about going into the Kherson area because they're afraid that they will be pounded the same way that they were pounded in Kharkov. Even the French intelligence has been warning the Zelensky regime that the curse on withdrawal might well be a trap. And so, you know, yes, the, I saw that. How can I put uh, this? It might be a trap. Here's something else that might be, Gonzalo. I don't myself believe it, and I infer from what you've said, neither do you. But there is a possibility that now that the Russians are on one side of the Dnipro and the Ukrainians are on the other, uh, that this could be the line of partition and that maybe there's some secret negotiating going on or perhaps might go on in Bali at the G20. What do you think 
about that possibility that this could have been a strategic withdrawal to bring about easily demarcated lines uh, that could separate the warring parties. Well, that's a very good, that, that is a possibility. Anything is possible. But I don't believe it for the following reason. Number one, the Kremlin knows that the West is, as they say, agreement incapable. And that whatever agreement they come, they, they come to, that the West will violate it or ignore it to their benefit. Uh, look at Minsk II. The possibility of a Minsk III agreement, the Russians know that the West will not live up to it. And they know that the West, the NATO countries, will flood Ukraine with even more weapons and men. And so there is no advantage to the Russians in freezing this conflict, uh, but a great deal of detriment to freezing the conflict. So I don't think that this is going to happen. I think that we are basically in an operational pause while the ground uh, hardens, because right now it's late fall and it's a rainy season, and so it's muddy. The mud is like quicksand. It just sucks you in and you can't move in it. And so the Russians are waiting for the winter when the ground hardens, and at the same time using this pause to really assemble all the men that called up. The, the notion that they're going to freeze this conflict, as they have done before, they, they froze it in Georgia, they froze it in Syria, if you think about it, they froze it in Ukraine between 2015 and 2022. I don't think that this is going to happen now. Uh, I, of course, I could be wrong, but I would be extremely surprised. Furthermore, I think that the, politic, the politics, the internal Russian politics, would almost not allow Vladimir Putin to freeze this conflict at this time. I don't think... Because we always have to remember one thing. Vladimir Putin is a moderate within the Kremlin. And we have seen other people, like Dmitry Medvedev, they are hawks. And there are a lot of hawks in the Kremlin who want this over with already. They want a clear, um, unambiguous victory. And so the notion that they're going to withdraw from Kherson and then freeze the conflict, I think, would be intolerable to a large segment of the Kremlin. And do keep in mind... Uh, Vladimir Putin is the president, but he, at the end of the day, has to convince the people that he leads to go in the direction that he is leading them to. If the people feel that, they, that he is leading them in the wrong direction, they are not going to follow him. And so I think at the time, the notion that it's going to be frozen, I find it very difficult to believe that that will happen. I think that they're going to go into a big offensive, and, uh, and then we'll just have to see how that goes. Now, Gonzalo, finally, and I'm grateful uh, for your time at this late hour. Uh, it's no, just as long as you want. As, uh, I, I, I owe you. I owe you. So as long as you want. God bless you. Uh, uh, it's just broken, and you may not have heard yet where you are in Ukraine, but a multi-billion dollar scandal has just exploded in the United States, where a cryptocurrency... Uh, FTX! With, <laughs> yeah, you know it. Now, um, one of the extraordinary features of this scandal, and it's only hours old, is that the Ukrainian government are claimed maybe even are claiming themselves that might explain a few things, 
as Garland Nixon said earlier, what money are we put it into, into crypto? Uh, that Biden was giving Ukraine money, Ukraine was giving the crypto company money, and the crypto company was giving donations to Biden. If established, <laughs> that would be the that would be the mother of all scandals, wouldn't it? Oh my God. Oh my good! I, I'm sorry. Okay, this is breaking now. I assume. Okay, so ten you see of this US guy dollars on the right, to Ukraine. There's, there's a man on the right. Yes, of the yes, screen. yes. Of course. There's two. Yeah, that, there's that, two criminals. That individual is. Um, there's two criminals yeah. sitting next to him, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. Yeah. But it turns yeah, out and that's the that the minor criminal on the right with the shorts on may have nicked billions of dollars some of which oh my god he gave 45 million dollars to joe biden just this year yes and promised a hundred million in in 24. so this could bring the whole show down couldn't it i don't know i mean i i, I find it just incredible you know uh, but at the same time screamingly funny and uh and, and the thing is of <laughs> yes. course i realize that the opposition in the united states the so-called republican party they're a useless lot they're gelded they are men with no honor or dignity or or any kind of of oomph you know they they, they are weaklings and so i i wonder if joe biden will skate away from this issue in his doddering old way, uh, because, you know, I, I think this is outrageous. In any other administration, this would have called for impeachment. I mean, it's as simple as that. If, sure. if this is true, that this was some sort of circular trade between the Biden administration to the Ukraine government, to FTX, money to the Biden administration, this would be something that uh, an impeachable offense uh, and something that would merit removing the president for the kind of corruption that we're talking about. It would, it would. But at and, this and point, sending George, the president to prison. Uh, yeah, I mean, but at, at this point, in, you know, I've after been the in Hunter Biden life, thing, uh, a long time. Uh, I know yeah. what these, how these criminals operate. This smells like a gigantic rat to me, uh, of uh, yes, of the perfect kickback. <laughs> The perfect kickback. You you donate yes. billions to Ukraine, the most popular cause in the world. Ukraine buys crypto uh, from these jokers in their shorts in the Bahamas, and the joker gives the Democrats forty-seven. I've got the number forty-seven million dollars, making them the second biggest donor after George Soros. Lyric Soros. <laughs> He's number one. FTX I'm sorry. Is number two. Well, listen, uh, stay safe, oh, Gonzalo. Man. I'm glad that we uh, got through to you. And good luck with your own podcast. How can people see that? Well, uh, it, it's on Patreon, and you can go to any of, uh, you can either go to my Roundtable channel or my Gonzalo Lira Again channel, and uh, the link is there. 
I want to thank you so much. I, I always, you know how much I appreciate you and respect you and just will always have a, a soft spot in my heart for you. And uh, it's good to see you. you I like your new look. I, I like the, the, you're looking good, looking sexy. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so good to see I, I'm you. I'm the same way I was. I'm the same way I was when I was 18. And I'm mighty pleased <laughs> about that. I, I, I recommend no carbs to everyone. Avoid the carbs. Gonzalo, avoid everything out there and stay safe until we Thank can you. talk to you again. And certainly cutting back on the carbs over Christmas. Quite difficult, actually, when you see everyone else having a fantastically balanced Christmas lunch and you're only eating the protein and fats. But hey, it works. Don't forget, we've also got Scott Ritter on the show, the most viewed man ever to appear on the mother of all talk shows. But before that, coming up after the break, it's my dear friend and the wonderful Farron Franchek. Back soon. Welcome back. You're watching the Christmas Day edition of the mother of all talk shows. I hope you have had a wonderful time and are keeping warm. It's warm in Florida, of course, and that's where Donald Trump made the announcement that he was indeed going to run to be president again. I spoke to my good friend Farron Fronchek about exactly what he said when he announced and exactly how that made her and millions of Americans feel. Take a look. You know, George, it's interesting. When you remember 2016 of Donald Trump coming down the escalator, uh, it was this grand moment. Uh, his speech was very angry, very fiery. Uh, I've, I, you know, I, when I was streaming it live last night on my own channel, um, after watching it, I want to call it the rebrand. He's it, This is like a Trump rebrand. He was very much more soft-spoken than we normally see him. He was uh, very to the point on a lot of his uh, different uh, remarks that he made. You know, he talked about China. He talked about building the rest of the wall. He talked about uh, critical race theory being taught in schools and kind of touched on those social issues. Not a lot of the name calling that we're, that we're used to seeing, you know, like the little Marco and, you know, the crooked Hillary. None of that. Uh, you didn't see a lot of comedy or that feistiness. It was a much more reserved you could almost say state elder statesman uh, type of uh, vibe coming from Trump last night, which has a lot of people either really, really happy or or much, you know, like kind of or actually you know, not happy. I would say confused, I think would probably be the better word. And then the, the Trump base being like, why wasn't he fiery? Why didn't he show his passion? You know, I had a journalist on with my uh, with me last night when we were streaming it who, you know, she's like, I miss the fiery Trump. I miss that guy. And I said, you know what? Here's the thing, though. His base knows who he is. This isn't a rally. It was much more statesmanlike. Again, it's he has to appeal now ever since the midterms. And we didn't see that red wave with the Republicans like they thought they would. We only saw a little bit of a ripple. He now has to win those independent moderate voters back. And this, I think, last night, uh, George, was a complete and total rebrand of, of the Trump uh, that we all kind of came to know. Well, it could have been a carefully calculated strategy of rebranding. Uh, or it could be that his heart's not in it. 
um, and uh, maybe it's a negotiating uh, posture. After all, uh, there's been a big lobby to uh, criminalize him, to charge him uh, on one bogus uh, case after another, taking you know, pencils and rubbers home from the White House and keeping them at uh, his home, uh, or metaphorically at least. Uh, it may be that now, as a candidate for president, he feels that they're much less likely to serve indictments on him, make criminal charges on him, because that would indeed be a major issue for American democracy if one party was trying to imprison uh, their rival candidate. Uh, so it could be that, or it could be that he's older and wiser, uh, in which case he might not, as you've said, be able to sufficiently energize his base. What, what, what's your thinking on that? You know, as far as the older and wiser comment, I would say for your last caller, probably would totally disagree with you on that one. Uh, but there are people, though, that, you know, especially many of the people around him are much different. If you remember 2016, he had Kellyanne Conway, Corey Lewandowski. These people are human pit bulls. I mean, they just went after the press. They went after candidates. They went after everybody. Um, and, and there was no stone unturned when it came to that primary of who they went after. Everybody got burned. Uh, now, his communications manager, uh, the, the folks that are in his team, it's a whole new it's a whole new chessboard here. Uh, you actually had his communications manager uh, just before the speech talking to uh, the news outlets saying, you know, you're going to see a different Trump. He's a little bit more reserved. Uh, so that's where you're going to see. Um, again, if you watch the speech last night, the only complaints that many people had is that it went on way too long. It started to get a little bit rumbly. Or, you know, he started to kind of ramble a little bit. And you actually saw the mainstream media from the likes of, well, MSNBC didn't even air it, uh, but, you know, the, the Republican outlets, they started to cut him off and, and go back into regular programming, whereas before, they were there start to finish. They were even there 45 minutes before he even took the stage. It's a completely different dynamic now. And I think one of the things is you're seeing, for example, with this whole midterm election, uh, many of the people that were election deniers that Trump uh, propped up, most of those, if not all of those people lost their election. Or, I mean, we're going to see and wait for Herschel Walker and see what happens with him as far as winning that Georgia Senate seat on December 6th. But, you know, having this idea that, OK, the economy's bad, gas prices are up. OK, Democrats are, are you know, they totally, you know, poop the bed on this one. We, this is an easy win for us. And when voters went out and they saw, you know what? I don't know. And they didn't see that red wave. That to me shows that voters thought, you know what? I just don't believe you. I don't believe you anymore. So I'm just going to stick with who I was with in 2020. And that's where Republicans have a lot of work to do. You can sit there and talk a great game, but you got to deliver on your promises. And right now, the Republicans are just known as telling you what's wrong. And yep, that's what needs to be fixed. But it's like, but how? Uh, Democrats have the same problem, too, but it's just this. The ball was in the Republican court this go around and they didn't score any great points. And with Trump, he's going to have to have to somewhat sit and deal with that and live with it. But also uh, he's known for picking horrible people around him. You know, you look at one of his first hires, John Bolton, the neocon of all neocons. 
People don't want that. People don't want to be involved in these wars. They're seeing how yesterday they were with the whole thing that happened with Poland, how now Congress wants to send another $37.3 billion over to Ukraine. More money. Americans are tired of it. And yes, he can sit and talk a great game, but at the end of the day, I think people do want some normalcy. They, they have liked a little bit of the normalcy with Biden. However, they do want somebody that's going to stand up and do something, just not in the bull in the China shop type of approach anymore. Well, uh, you put your finger on one possible uh, um, clear red water that could be put between the two parties that would save the American people a lot of money and a lot of blood. Uh, I saw a tweet from Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr. this evening, in which he said, now that we know uh, that Ukraine attacked our NATO ally Poland with a missile, can we at least stop sending billions of taxpayer dollars to them? If Trump were to become the anti-war leader right now, if he were to say, enough is enough, no more money, send me, I'll fix this, I'll make sure that this doesn't get any worse. That actually could begin to build a head of steam behind him that nobody else could live with. Right. But the only thing is, though, is that people still, you know, especially on the left, they still see him as this, you know, um, bombastic, uh, you know, uncertain type of character. Now, what is interesting, what's very interesting from what I'm hearing in my Republican circles, uh, in D.C., um, which the Democrat, it hasn't even hit their circles yet. They're talking about VP options, right? Uh, since he's announced, he's got it, you know, and usually you, you, you announce VP options after you win the nomination. They're, they're playing it as if Trump has won the nomination. They think he's going to get it. And he has a very, very good chance of doing it. One of the people that's being floated for vice president that had my entire chat saying, I will, you know what, hands down, even if I hate Trump, I will vote for him on this one. Senator Rand Paul, son of Ron Paul, uh, who was very beloved uh, by the American people. Senator Rand Paul making a name for himself, going up against Dr. Fauci, going up against, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine and all this money that's being sent along with Congressman Massey, uh, where they've been asking these questions over and over and over again. Uh, my chat just lit up when they saw the name Rand Paul. And that is a name that is being floated for the vice presidential nomination under Trump. And having somebody like that, who is known to be very anti-war, who is has that very uh, staunch American libertarianism uh, name strapped to him, and he's widely known for that, that could be the key that brings over some of those moderates that says, you know, well, I don't like Trump. At least we have a guy like Rand in there to, to, who will, who has stood up against Trump before, who has primaried against him in 2016. Uh, that's a name that uh, is being floated, and a lot of people immediately had excitement for that one, George. Very interesting. I'm sure they will uh, now on this show also. Uh, lastly, I know you, you don't have a crystal ball, but it's not long to the Georgia runoff. Who are the runners and riders there, and what do you think the likely outcome will be? Well, I actually will be in Georgia uh, for December, on December 6th for that runoff. So if you need somebody on the ground there, I'm there. Uh, but oh, it's going to be, uh, will, yes. 
It's going to be the uh, senator incumbent, uh, the Democrat, Raphael Warnock, against the Republican Herschel Walker. Now, here was the interesting thing about all of this. Um, I have a friend in the Walker campaign who said that immediately when they decided that this was going to be going to a runoff, which you have to get over uh, 50, 50 plus one um, in order to win that seat, they did not. So now the bottom candidate, which was a libertarian candidate, is thrown off the ballot. Hence the special election. Uh, a lot of voters in Georgia feeling a little bit too much like, okay, I voted enough. We've dealt with this already, but they got to come out and do it one more time. Um, my friend in the Walker campaign told me that immediately the Trump campaign was called and said, don't worry about it. We got it. We're just going to, we're going to have senators come in and stump for Herschel. Stay home. Just you, you worry about your campaign. You do you boo. And <laughs> that the Trump team was like, okay, it's one less thing for us to do. And then the Ron DeSantis team was called and said, hey, you want to come on the campaign trail and campaign with Herschel Walker for the next three weeks? And it looks like wow. DeSantis is going to be going. Uh, you got Ted Cruz. You got Mitch McConnell. You got, you know, the usual suspects, Rick Scott. Um, you go, you got all these other Republicans that are going down there. I think uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Trump already knows, but when he sees That's quite high in risk, action, though, Farhan. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very yeah, high it's risk thing. High risk. I mean, World War III, uh, there's the, another if one. If DeSantis <laughs> spends three weeks there and they don't win, uh, then Trump will say, look, that was because you kept me out of the campaign and look how popular DeSantis is. He's nothing without me. I mean, I could write that for Trump right now. Right, exactly. And that's where they do think, though, with, his, with DeSantis' star power, as far as when it comes to your local governorship you know like that that local guy you know he's not he's nationally known but he's more of a local governor um having that star power and then being just one state over uh they think that that's going to actually help drive people out to the polls uh because herschel walker you know he was one of the greatest running backs of all time probably not one of the greatest politicians you know and so he's going to need a little bit of help to get over that hump however if you have all these other republicans get, get, that are throwing the ball Exactly. Yeah. He's going to need some help to get the ball the over the line. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, After that's the thing show, is, is if you have these other Republicans. You need to explain to me and the British audience and Europeans what a running back is. Farhan Fronchak, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> the guy who takes all the hits, George. The guy who the takes all the hits. Of all <laughs> she never did explain what a running back is. We'll have to get her back on. When the Kerch Bridge was attacked and partially destroyed, I spoke to the former Marine Corps intelligence officer and all-round military expert, Scott Ritter, about what is going to happen next. Here's what he said. A decision had been made to partially mobilize to bring 300,000 reservists onto active duty. Um, a you know decision had been made to, and it's a dramatic decision, to incorporate uh, four formerly Ukrainian territories into the Russian Federation. Um, and while this was, I think, you know, groundbreaking in terms of the, the geopolitics of it, um, it hadn't fundamentally changed the situation on the ground. The Russian military was still overextended. Uh, the Ukrainians were still uh, enjoying the momentum of their uh, September offensive. Uh, and then the attack on the bridge came. And um, we, we've just seen a dramatic transition. The Russians have basically taken the brakes off 
they've appointed a new commander, um, ominously nicknamed General Armageddon. And um, he has been given, you know, he's the single commander of the entire theater. He makes all the decisions. He can use the weapons. Anything short of nuclear weapons uh, can be used to achieve the objectives. And um, within 24 hours of taking command, um, as you mentioned, the the skies, if not blackened by uh, by cruise missiles, uh, were definitely there was a, uh, a a definite presence felt by the Ukrainians as uh, scores of uh, critical strategic infrastructure targets were hit, not just one day, but the next day and the next day. I don't know how long this campaign will go. Uh, if it truly is the initiation of a strategic air campaign designed to destroy um, the critical infrastructure of Ukraine in preparation for a large-scale Russian ground offensive, uh, mirroring, by the way, the approach taken by the United States in Desert Storm back in 1991, then uh, the Ukrainians are in for a very, very long and difficult uh, period of their history, one which will see um, the integrity of their nation degraded. It's tragic for the Ukrainian people. Um, it's tragic for Europe. It's tragic for everybody. Uh, but it's something that they brought upon themselves together with NATO, the United States, the European Union. And we see it. We see the impact of this. Um, we see the panic in the in the voice of uh, Zelensky as he calls for preemptive nuclear strikes, as he begs for assistance, um, pleads for more money, more weapons. We see NATO assembling a, an emergency meeting in Brussels where they're talking about sending hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars more of air defense systems uh, to you know, create from whole cloth an integrated air defense network capable of defending Ukraine from the, the Russian onslaught. I think things look good on paper when they're planned in a vacuum. Uh, you know, you can sit there in Brussels and say, I'm going to put a radar here, put some missiles here, and we'll move it all around and, and shuffle. It's another thing to try to do that in the midst of an ongoing air campaign where Russia is going to be hunting you down and seeking to destroy you before these systems put in. Um, you know, but all it shows is that NATO, rather than doing the right thing and going to Ukraine and saying, hey, we might want to look for a diplomatic off-ramp that allows you to preserve as much of your country as possible and as many lives as possible. NATO's doubling down on their bad bet, um, only you know, working to lengthen this tragic conflict, which in the end will result in the same outcome. Russia wins. Um, but this time, Russia's victory will come with a far greater you know, blood debt. Uh, tens of thousands of more Ukrainians will die. Thousands of Russians will die. Um, mothers will no longer have their husbands, will no longer have their sons, uh, wives. It, it's just, it, this is tragic for everybody. And uh, it just, it, it's something that seems to escape everybody in NATO, in Kiev, in Washington, D.C. It, it, it seems as if humanity no longer has any value, that it's all about geopolitics. It's all about trying to, uh, you know, outmaneuver Russia in, in some grand, uh, you know, global scheme. But war isn't about that. War is about people killing people, and that's what's going on right now. Uh, Stoltenberg uh, took the mask off, didn't he, yesterday? He said uh, a, a victory for the Russian side in this conflict would be a defeat for NATO, and that cannot be allowed to happen. This was a declaration of NATO's involvement in the war up front and public, wasn't it? 
100%. I mean, it, it's also curious, again, that, um, you know, he chose this this moment to uh, to to take the mask off, as you uh, so eloquently said. Um, I thought, I mean, listening to Jan, um, <laughs> that Russia was losing. I thought that the Russians were being defeated. I thought that Russia was on the run. I thought Ukraine had turned the tables, that this was decisive. Um, and suddenly, no, a Russian victory is a defeat for NATO, and we cannot let it happen. Stoltenberg's scared. Stoltenberg knows what's going on. Stoltenberg understands what happened. And that's why he did the next dumbest thing, which is to announce that NATO will continue a nuclear exercise next week. Uh, it's an annual exercise of NATO's nuclear uh, capabilities, but this is not the right time. You know, at a time in, when the president of Ukraine is calling for a preemptive NATO nuclear strike against Russia, why would NATO exercise the very means that would be used to carry out a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia? Uh, the wise thing to do is uh, something that a man of maturity uh, uh, you know, a man of intelligence, a man of humanity would do would be to cancel or postpone these uh, this this exercise so as not to unnecessarily uh, elevate tensions uh, at a time when nuclear weapons are being discussed. Uh, but that's not what he did. He he doubled down on his notion that Russia cannot be allowed to win. Therefore, to help preclude a Russian victory, NATO is going to do what? Test its nuclear arsenal. This is insanity of the highest order. Yes, I mean, they'll be making dramas uh, about uh, that uh, in, in years to come, if we are permitted any years to come. Because, of course, upon that uh, announcement that you referred to, Russia immediately began exercises amongst its civilian population, distributing leaflets, putting out films and... Uh, organizing the population to prepare for the possibility of weapons of mass destruction uh, coming in and, and, uh, and uh, being used to attack them. They are giving out leaflets, for example, I saw one earlier today, uh, which when translated was a leaflet telling you what to do about the possibility of radiation poisoning. Uh, it's like going back, uh, I don't know if you recall those days, Scott, uh, to the 1980s, uh, the placement of crews and Pershing missiles in Europe, the fear uh, amongst the, uh, the Eastern Bloc, uh, the Warsaw Pact countries, that nuclear war was going to be preemptively launched by NATO. Now, it never was going to be. And of course, it did not happen. But you still see great movies and dramas today about the tension that that led to. And I could hardly believe my ears when they announced they're going to have a nuclear drill at this moment where Joe Biden is talking about the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. Uh, George, this is this is super. I mean, first of all, I, I do remember the 1980s. Um, I was in the Marine Corps at the time of the, those deployments, and I was actually one of the inspectors that went into the Soviet Union. I was the first inspector into the Soviet Union uh, as part of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was signed between the United States and the Soviet Union to get rid of those weapons, to get rid of the Pershings, the cruise missiles, the Soviet SS-20s, etc. Um, 
And, and so this is why I, I take double umbrage at uh, Stoltenberg's comments. Hey, Stoltenberg, people like me sacrificed a whole bunch to get rid of those weapons, to create a, a situation where your relatives, your people, your citizens wouldn't have to live in fear under a nuclear umbrella that could collapse on them at any moment. We took that away so you could breathe easy, live easy. Now you're bringing it right back. I mean, this is literally lunacy of the highest order. And I'm not just, you know, worried about it. I'm angered. I mean, we spent a lot of time and effort and money uh, making the world a safer place to live. And now, thanks to people like Jan Stoltenberg, Donald Trump for getting out of the INF Treaty, Joe Biden and others, uh, we're just going right back to square one. And we're making the same mistake. Abel Archer 83 was a NATO nuclear uh, exercise that almost brought NATO and Russia to nuclear conflict because the Russians didn't realize until the last minute that this was just an exercise. They thought it was the real deal. And that's one of the things that led Ronald Reagan to sign the INF Treaty, this realization that we almost went to nuclear war over a mistake. Well, my goodness, read the history books, Stoltenberg. You're making the same mistakes. You can't always count on dodging the bullet. Now, uh, Scott, the, uh, when you uh, look back on it, you might say you didn't have to be Einstein to foresee it. Uh, the attack uh, by a terror uh, bomb uh, on the Kerch Bridge was a big mistake by Ukraine. One hundred percent. And, um, you know, but so was the uh, the assassination of Daria Dugina. Um, you know, so were so many other things that are that have been done here. The the Ukrainians are in danger of not just having the Russians recognize the reality of this regime, but the world to wake up to the fact that if you carry out an act of terrorism, which, of course, the attack on the Kirchbriz was, then those who perpetrate it are terrorists. And if a state sponsors this, they become state sponsors of terrorism. The Ukrainian government has literally defined itself as a state sponsor of terrorism, and its intelligence services are now a terrorist organization. Um, this is an uncomfortable reality for the people that support them. But it's, it's one thing to have Russia call them out. Another thing to have done something that actually pushed Russia in a direction that they did not want to go. You know, Russia could have taken the gloves off at any time over the past eight months, any time. They didn't. Russia has not been seeking this escalation. Russia has been seeking a diplomatic solution to this crisis. But now, because of this attack, diplomacy is off the table. The gloves are off, and the Ukrainians are going to pay, you know, as they said in Games of Thrones, the, the, the iron price. Um, it's... I don't think this ends well for Ukraine. In fact, I don't think this ends with Ukraine uh, being anywhere near the, the, the nation state we currently see. I think it's going to be uh, smaller, uh, more fractured, and it certainly won't be governed by you know the Nazi-embracing regime of um, Volodymyr Zelensky. What did you make of the Belarusian uh, front, uh, the military movements that took place there? over the last uh, 48 hours. The Belarus border is exceedingly close to Kiev. Uh, you can motor there very quickly. I have myself done so in uh, years gone by. 
it is uh, uh, it, it is a potentially lethal threat uh, to the Ukrainians if Belarus enters the war, isn't it? It is, but uh, Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, has made it clear that he doesn't have any intention to enter the war in terms of uh, fulfilling Russia's uh, objectives under the special military operation. He has been consistent in saying that Belarus has one task and one task only, and that is to stop NATO from stabbing Russia in the back while Russia carries out the Ukraine operation. Uh, but Lukashenko has also said that they will not allow Poland to move into Western Ukraine, that they will not allow Poland to take control of that territory. And what's been happening over the course of the summer is that Poland has been, um, in the United States, we call it sheep dipping, but basically changing the nature of Polish troops, transforming them into Ukrainian troops and sending them to Ukraine to fight the Russians. We know this, why? Because there are hundreds of Polish corpses littering the battlefields. Uh, the Russians know exactly what's going on. Um, Poland is seeking to double down on this, and they're preparing more troops to be sheep-dipped. And the Belarusians are becoming very concerned that Poland may be making a play for Western Ukraine, taking advantage of uh, the upcoming defeat of, of Ukraine. And Lukashenko said, I will not tolerate Poland extending its borders uh, you know, down my country, in effect surrounding, uh, trying to surround me. And so I believe the Poles are preparing to intervene, uh, to block any effort of the Poles to make a move on um, on Western Ukraine. And this would be a decisive uh, entry into the uh, into the conflict. But it, it goes beyond this because Poland won't do this uh, without certain assurances from Russia. And uh, among those assurances is that Russia will extend its nuclear umbrella over Belarus so that if the Baltic states or Poland were to engage in some sort of uh, military adventurism in response to a Belarusian move into Western Ukraine, um, that you know Russia, that Russia's nuclear arsenal would come into play. So this is a very, very dangerous situation. And again, it could be avoided if Poland just kept its nose out of what's going on in Ukraine. But Poland has been making noises for some time now that it has uh, that it intends to incorporate Western Ukraine back into Poland, keeping in mind that in 1939 it was taken away, 1945, uh, the Stalin once again took it away and gave it to others, and the Poles feel that historically this territory belongs to them. I'm glad you made that uh, point, though we don't have too much time to dilate upon it, but uh, we're being asked potentially to die in a nuclear winter uh, over whether unpronounceable place names are to be in Ukraine or in Russia when they've actually been in a multiple number of countries already in the course of the last hundred years. Maybe uh, that's a discussion for another time. Finally, Scott, uh, and I'm grateful for your time always, uh, President Macron said today, I, again, I could scarcely believe my eyes, that uh, President Putin has to get back to the table to negotiate uh, a table at which, number one, the Ukrainians have said explicitly they will never sit at, and moreover, a table that was burned by the EU, including Macron and NATO in general, uh, eight months ago. Uh, they are the ones that say 
that uh, no negotiated settlement is possible, that only the defeat of Russia can bring about the end of this war. Uh, is this a sign that Macron is weakening, or is he just talking out of his backside? Well, it's, it's both, actually. Um, I, I mean, there's no consistency in um, Macron or anybody in the European community right now, and they speak about Russia, so almost everything they say comes out of their proverbial backsides. But uh, it's, it's also a, a recognition on the part of France and a growing recognition on the part of almost everybody in, in Europe that Ukraine has lost this conflict. The, uh, to, to, to coin a, or to bring a historical analogy uh, from the American Civil War, um, the September offensive in Kharkov was their high water mark, uh, similar to that of the Confederate Army on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg when Pickett's charge was undertaken. Um, you know, they'll never be as good as they were at that point in time. They burned their reserves, they have nothing left. Uh, Russia's mobilizing faster than Ukraine can rebuild. Uh, Russia has a strategic air campaign that's degrading Ukraine's infrastructure, and it's going to be a long, grueling, tragic decline to unconditional defeat. And Macron recognizes this, so he is now starting to panic and, and say Russia must come to the table. Well, why would you invite Russia to the table again if Russia is losing? I thought Russia lost. I thought the Russian army was defeated. I thought, I thought, I thought. No, it turns out that Russia's winning. Macron is panicked. Zelensky's panicked. NATO's panicked. Europe's panicked. Biden's panicked. There's nothing they can do to stop this outcome. Um, and, and so they're hoping that, what, Putin's going to uh, win the war for them by surrendering on the moment of his greatest victory? I think not. Scott Ritter, one of the sharpest military men to be found anywhere in the world. And if God spares us both, I'll be interviewing him regularly throughout the remainder of the war in Ukraine. But coming up after the break, we revisit the Jeffrey Epstein affair. It hasn't gone away, you know, and neither has his first accuser, Maria Farmer. Right after this. The 1897 edition of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, read by George Galloway, available only on Patreon. The cylinder was artificial, hollow, with an end that screwed out. Something within the cylinder was unscrewing the top. Good heavens! said Ogilvy. There's a man in it, men in it, half roasted to death, trying to escape. At once, with a quick mental leap, he linked the thing with the flash on Mars. The thought of the confined creature was so dreadful to him that he forgot the heat and went forward to the cylinder to help turn. But luckily, the dull radiation arrested him before he could burn his hands on the still glowing metal.
listening to the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Back in June in the week that Ghislaine Maxwell was finally sentenced for her crimes, we spoke to Maria Farmer, who has always claimed to have been one of Epstein's first victims, certainly the first to report him. I asked her what she would like now to happen to Ghislaine Maxwell and the Epstein affair. This is what she had to say. I'd like to see her stay alive. And, and I have a concern um, because uh, the, the Southern District of New York, who's sort of in charge of all of this, they, they are in charge. <laughs> Um, they've known about Guilan and her antics since 1996 because the FBI gave them all the information. That's how it works. So um, people sometimes don't understand why I'm so upset with the Southern District. And it's because they then feigned to have never heard of Jeffrey Epstein or Guilan Maxwell until Julie Brown, who is a, a writer and um, a journalist, right, for the Miami Herald. And basically... Um, I just think I would like to see her stay alive and spend the rest of her days in prison while I have a beautiful view and Virginia has a beautiful view and the rest of us do. Yes, that's what I would like. Well, uh, uh, you know, she might, to her very great surprise, uh, commit suicide. Uh, indeed, uh, this very night, she's on a, a suicide watch. Uh, right. Because, you know, the Southern District of New York, let's face it, is Clinton territory. Yes. Uh, and uh, the Clinton uh, crime family have very mm -hmm. great influence uh, there. And they have uh, a vested interest in Ghislaine Maxwell not trading names for a reduction in her sentence, don't they? They do. They have a great interest in it. And, you know, you had mentioned this before. Um, not one of the men who assaulted these children has been arrested. Not one of the people that worked beside Guilan to harm children and young women and vulnerable people. Not one has been arrested. And so that's why um, I've remained vocal. That's why new survivors, not new survivors, but survivors who didn't want to have to come out, like George Tonks. That's why... Um, he's come forward because the main person behind all of this is Leslie Wexner and Leslie Wexner has, he's gotten off scot-free and we don't understand it. So he must have so much power uh, either through the CIA or the Southern district. We just don't know what position he holds, but he's in the middle of everything and he owns Southern air transport. I mean, he owns the CIA airlines, right? And, you know, my lawyers had talked to me about that ages ago and, and, I just think that uh, Brad Edwards in his book uh, says that he believes that Epstein um, was CIA. And it if you remember that picture of Guilan where she was reading a book, uh, it was the only picture that came out when they were looking for her, you know? Um, they knew exactly where she was. And I know that because the FBI told me they always know where everyone is at all times, <laughs> internationally as well. They did tell me that. That's what Nesbitt Kirkadall said. So she kind of giggled when I asked how they found me in the woods off grid. And, um, but what's interesting is uh, basically, Ghislaine's trying to, I think, pull something. You know, they had my sister come, uh, the victims who, who testified all showed up 
or I believe are all there right now to read their statements. And they're going to have um, Gilan not show up and, and they're not going to be allowed to read any statements. So it's like, we just never get justice. That's what it feels like. <laughs> So uh, Galen Maxwell's legal team, they tried to stop uh, these victim statements from being uh, read. Is that right. correct? I was, I was going to ask you if I could read mine. Yes, you are more than welcome, please. Oh, thank you. Oh, you know what? I can't because it's on my phone, <laughs> so I can't actually read it. I'm sorry. But basically, but, I just... Uh, I, where can, I told, where, where, where can uh, people read it? Have you put it on your social media? Okay, so um, that's interesting. I had to go off of social media. This is something that people should know about. Um, we survivors are being really poorly treated on social media, so most of us aren't on there. I had to go off because of a, a couple people that claim they're journalists, but they're not actually journalists because they're tormenting survivors with lymphoma. They specifically singled out the two of us who survived Wexner and are fighting lymphoma. And so I just kind of wonder what's going on with that. But anyway, I can't use any um, social media because, because of these people, because they have all these fake accounts and, um, you know, fake followers that they have tormenting us. And so we just can't even use it to the point where they're trying to assist Gilan in getting exonerated. These trolls that are pretending, and that's the thing, please don't buy any books written about Jeffrey Epstein, I wanna tell your audience, unless they're written by one of the lawyers or one of the survivors, because every one of our trolls right now has a book on Jeffrey Epstein. And there's a new one coming out. And the other thing is there was a lot of lies coming out about Leslie Wexner, in my opinion, um, coming out in the Hulu documentary. And you should boycott that because that was not a good experience. Um, I should not have participated. I was manipulated, in my opinion. <laughs> so anyway, well, the point uh, is, of course, it's, it's uh, been a rough ride for the survivors. It's not like what people think. Like, um, Basically, Virginia deserves the world because she's been through it. I mean, nobody understands what she's been through. This is the strongest woman alive, and she's a fighter, and she's a beautiful soul. And even though she's been through all those horrible things, she's kind. She's very kind. And, you know, so like the trolls who are currently writing a book and who are going to publish their book during, I think, when the Hulu documentary comes out, I'm assuming, um, they don't even have an ounce of class. And that's the one thing that at least Julie Brown and Vicki Ward had one ounce, not more, but they have one ounce. And, but they have tormented, like Vicki Ward has tormented me for almost 26 years, 20, over 24 years now. And she recently sent a threat letter to my lawyers. I mean, I take it as a threat. It's a legal letter telling me to shut up. I never discussed her. So then I'm gonna discuss her because she's culpable for what happened because she never wrote about it. And so all those girls ended up suffering. And so the other thing is Julie Brown takes credit for the whole case, but Julie Brown had nothing to do with this case. I went to the FBI in 1996. I hid because I had to go to the FBI and hide from the Clintons, right? The sitting president and the Trumps and all of them. I had to hide from them. And um, so people want to change history, right? They're really trying. They're trying to cast aspergences on all the survivors. They're investigating me. I mean, I had my graduate school investigate me. Why didn't they do that 30 years ago? Why are they doing it now? Why are all these people defaming me? And you have to wonder why they're supporting Gilan and who's paying them. 
That's what I always wonder. Because I found out through this thing, everything ends up to be about money. And Ghislaine Maxwell is, uh, <laughs> is the most dangerous woman I've ever met. And these, these trolls are trying to have her exonerated. It's just, it's mind boggling. I don't understand it. So I believe that she will spend the rest of her life in prison if she gets a life, right? If they actually allow her to stay alive. Well, look, Maria, uh, if you send us uh, your victim statement, we'll find a way to showcase it either on our website or our Twitter handle or on screen if we get it in time. Oh, that's I wonderful. To make the point I'll send you that, both uh, mine and my sister's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll be, we'll be, yeah, we'll be uh, happy to do that. Uh, the only you. two people that were uh, ever charged in this regard were Epstein and Maxwell, and the only convicted one is Maxwell. Uh, right. Wexner uh, is not facing charges. He's not here to answer the points that you made about him. Uh, and of course, we make ourselves available if he wants yes. to comment. Uh, that would be if he wonderful. wants to answer the points that you've made uh, about him. So please, Mr. Wexner, if you feel you've been wronged uh, yes. by what Maria Farmer has said, by all means. Uh, enter the lists and we'll give you all the time you want. Um, yes. The offences against you, as I understand it, took place at Leslie Wexner's ranch. Is that right? That's right. It was on his New Albany estate in New Albany, Ohio. And I was watched on uh, cameras by his wife and his family or whomever in their home whoever felt like watching me uh, 24 hours a day under video surveillance, I was told by Gilan and Jeffrey that the pinhole cameras were ubiquitous in the home. If I needed to, if I went to the restroom, Gilan would call me and tell me to get out of the loo because um, I actually needed, she needed to speak to me at that moment because she was watching me from New York. And I developed um, a severe, se very severe health condition from the trauma of being at that estate. And I know it happened then because number one, some amazing doctors told me that it had been 23 years. And at that point that the brain tumor had grown. And at that point I was like, you know, I was a health nut, by the way, I've always been really careful with my gut and what I take into my body. And I was an athlete. So to suddenly be very, very sick at that, I got sick at that estate. Um, when I left, my father was shocked because I couldn't get off of the sofa for literally days on end, even to shower. So I got hit with this phenomenal fatigue at Leslie Wexner's house. And I was, um, my life was threatened by his right-hand man, Randy Bowie. And so, yeah, I would love it if he would come on and explain himself because he's been into this business of harming children since at least the eighties, we know. Um, we've been able to track it to at least the eighties. So, um, you know, through his survivors. And, and, and I'm not the only well, survivor. as I say, uh, he's also has lymphoma. Yeah, uh, as weird, I say, you know? uh, he's not so here we're, to we're really answer. Trying to, uh, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Maria, Maria. He's not, Maria, he's not here to answer these things. Uh, and so I have to make that point that uh, he's not charged with any crime. He is the apparently respectable head of Victoria's secret, a worldwide business. Uh, he's a very rich and powerful man. I don't know if he's litigious. Maybe he doesn't want to get into litigation, but I 
have to make. Oh, he's the extremely point. litigious. And, uh, he's um, not here. So for my first interview, yeah, I right. interviewed well, with CBS. Uh, uh, all the more, all, all the more reason why I need to stop you. If he's extremely okay, litigious, you've made serious allegations against him. Yes. All I can do now uh, is reiterate that Leslie Wexner is welcome on the show or to send a statement to the show uh, answering the very serious allegations that you have made against him. And after reaching out to Leslie Wexner on air, we didn't hear anything. But Mr. Wexner, if you are watching this, you are more than welcome to come on the show. You'll get a very fair hearing from me to comment on the allegations that Ms. Farmer has made against you. It's important. You can drop us an email on air at moats.tv. Now, we're going to end the show. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without a sing-song with a rendition from the king. Not Jesus, not even King Charles. King Elvis It is, of course, Kenny, who's somewhere in England, but might as well be in Las Vegas. Take a look. Ding, ding, round three. <laughs> George, I've sent you a super on, chat on Wednesday asking if you remember when I told the story of my uncle Stephen losing his trousers that I phoned up. And you said you couldn't uh, remember. Yes, that's right. I, I don't, I don't, no, tell me, remind me. I'll remind you, can I take you, I'll take you for a walk down memory lane right now. Listen to this. But then I heard my mum okay. coming down the stairs. And she... <laughs> I knew that was a hoax. I just knew that it had to be a hoax. Will we let him speak on? Okay. Oh, yo. No, Kenny. Yo. Go on. I'm still, it's a true story. Uh, you just burst out laughing. That, oh. That's what That's what put a question mark on it. Right, well, listen. I'm listening. And when she opened the door, a man walked in, and it was my uncle Stephen, and just his T-shirt, wife, and a pair of socks. He was demanding that my mum tell him where his trousers are. Where's my trousers? Where's my trousers? Mum says, OK, I don't know where your bloody trousers are. Kenneth, have you seen your Uncle Stephen's trousers? I went, no, uh, but I'll go up the stairs and get a, a pair of my dad's, my deceased father's trousers, which were too small for him. So I came back down and I said, here, put them on. And he grabbed them out my hand. Uh, and tried to put up, he said, these are bloody day. So he stood on the path in front of the door. But because the trousers were too small for him and too tight, he started hopping on one leg as he tried to get both legs into the pair of trousers. And <laughs> he fell backwards and banged his head off the doorstep. And then he went out the gate. And because the trousers were too tight, both his thighs were stuck together, so he had to walk down the street from the knees down and with a bleeding head. There you are. Well, that's a remarkable story. Um, it's one of the worst Friday the 13th stories I've ever heard, but it entertained us. Uh, did you get that? I did. I you... did. Uh, uh, remarkable. You, you and I both sound more Scottish there. Back then, uh, than we do now. We've been, we've obviously been down south too long, Kenny. George. Kenny. 
Yeah, go on. I've been teetotal for 11 years, so we're both teetotal as well. But we're on different sides of the football yeah. spectrum because I'm a jumbo. There you are, eh? And the last oh, game I was yeah, at... That's the, the, the worst stadium I've ever been in in my entire puff. It's a stadium in which I endured more than 90 minutes of unrelenting sectarian abuse once spotted sitting in the stand with Tosh McKinley's father, who used to play for you and then for Celtic. And for 95, 6, 7 minutes, it was F the Pope and it was F me and it was, oh, what an, I would never in my life, if you paid me, go to Tynecastle again. There you go, I've got to get that off my chest. Last word to you, Kenny. Yeah, you get sectarianism in both Hearts, Hibs, Rangers, Celtic, but it's less pronounced in Edinburgh than it is in Glasgow. The last game I was actually at was... Not, 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 in, not, not in my experience, okay. but anyway, we're, we're boring the international audience. Right, the last game I was at Celtic beat us 7-0 in the Scottish Cup when we had a transfer embargo and Gary Locke was the manager, and I'm too traumatised to go back. After that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Have you got a song for yeah, me? Okay. We usually right, finish with, on a song with you, Yeah, Kenny. I'll sing. I'll do a quick song. Go on. Right. Blue moon, blue moon, blue moon, keep on shining bright. Blue moon, keep on shining bright. You're going to bring me back to my baby tonight. Blue moon, keep on shining bright. I said blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Kentucky, keep on riding. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. Hello? Yeah, what fabulous. That's from the Sun. Cheers, man. That's from the Sun Sessions. That was Elvis at his very best. Well, you weren't Elvis at his very best, but Elvis was at his very best I've got, in those I've got two tickets sessions. to see the new Elvis film that's coming out. I'm get, the tickets are for the release day on the 24th on, in Leicester Square. I, 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 I'll be there. I'll oh, be there. I'm going to take a woman, George. I, I might even be at the premiere. I'm going to take a woman, George. I might even be at the premiere <laughs> of the new Elvis movie, having been a child member of the Elvis Presley fan club, the official Elvis Presley fan club of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I certainly was and still am, but, but the young Elvis, not the old fat Elvis in Vegas, though having watched the biopic, I must say it was a tragic end. But to end the show with a tune from Kenny is enough to make anybody's Christmas, isn't it? Although a surprising number of people ask me not to put them on again, but you know me. Now, I'll be back on New Year's night, so no midweek show this week. I'll be back next Sunday, the 31st of December. Looking forward, if that's the term, to 2023. But normally, we are here on Sundays and Wednesdays. We've also got a podcast, and I have got a Patreon page, which badly needs your patronage. You can find me on patreon.com forward slash George Galloway, where I'm reading some of the greatest classics, like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. I'm talking about Ghislaine Maxwell's father in the Maxwell tapes, and much, much more more 
beside. So make a date to be with us regularly throughout 2023. We'll be back on New Year's night where I'll get the opportunity, I hope, to wish you a very happy new year. Meanwhile, enjoy Christmas week. Won't you? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 